You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which comforts us, which uh, sometimes puzzles us, and uh, uh, your word leads us, guides us. Sometimes it rebukes us. Sometimes it uh, uh, so greatly encourages us and it always empowers us, Lord. And we pray that, Father, you would meet each of us where we are and that, Father, you'd be pleased to speak to us this morning as we look to your word, as we consign our hearts to your word, and as we do the best we can to concentrate on your word and to try to understand it, that, Father, you would work by way of your Holy Spirit uh, in our hearts, Father. And give us each the message that we need, Father. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. This morning we continue in our our study of, of Romans. And actually at this point, we now begin really a new section. Uh, Romans 6 actually really kind of continues into Romans 7, if that makes any sense. It's, it doesn't really make sense, but try to Romans six continues into Romans seven. That doesn't make any sense, does it, Lorraine? I, I think you guys know what I'm saying. The argument of Romans six continues into uh, Romans seven, verses one to six. And uh, uh, be be it, uh, advised that the um, versification of the Bible, the chapters and the verses, are not inspired. They were they were added, and sometimes they're wonderful and marvelous. Sometimes. Sometimes they're just not, uh, you know, maybe Romans 6 should have continued on to Romans 7, 1 to 6. Enough about all of that, okay. Uh, I think all that is to say that we come into a new section. And uh, so far in our study, we've seen that Paul, you know, he has made some really radical statements about the law. And these statements, of course, fly right past us because we don't have the same background that many of Paul's original audience had. Uh, so it's, I think we have to work a, a bit hard to try to see that. Uh, what I'd like to do really to start is to, to try to uh, reveal that as much as we can. May I start by saying that many in the first century believed that the law actually could make you righteous. And I've said that in earlier studies. Uh, many really embraced that. And uh, I, I think, you know, as I've thought about that uh, this week, I think that belief is still really quite alive and well today 
And we may embrace that more than we realize. Um, I, I'll give you a, an example. Um, it's not uncommon for us to hear people say when they look at the, the massive immorality that's taking place in our culture, where people say, you know, we really need to get back to the way it used to be. You know, we need the blue laws and we need, you know, the blue laws being, okay, everything's closed on Sunday. And, and uh, you know, we need those Ten Commandments back up on the courtroom walls. And, and we need all of these things. And we hear all this stuff. And, and, I, and there's a, a large portion of us that, that, that say, amen. I would, don't get me wrong. I would love to see all that. I would love to see all that. But will that create, that in and of itself, will it create the inward righteousness that we really need? And the answer is no. Uh, the answer is no. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I wouldn't like to see all that happen. I would. But would that be the answer to our dilemmas? Uh, the answer is no. And Paul, is, Paul has been saying that. If you, if you turn back to Romans 3 and verse 20, what does Paul say there? Romans 3 and verse 20 he says, by works of the law, what? No human being will be justified since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. And that really is the first point. I'm, I'm really only going to make two points this morning. There are sub points, but the two points I want to make this morning is that the law is a mirror. And it's not only a mirror, but it's a window. It's not only a mirror, but it's a window. And all the way back in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is saying that by works of the law, no human being will be justified since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, if you believe that the law can make you righteous, this is a radical statement. Uh, if you skip down to verse 28, Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If you go down to chapter 4, verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And it is wise, you recall when we were back in chapter 4, it is wise for God to bring Abraham into it. For Abraham's very name means what? Does anybody remember? His very name means father, or, uh, father of the faithful, if you will. Uh, father of the faithful. Um, and then if you look at chapter 4, verses 4 to 8, where we read now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, you see that? Who does not work. But trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Radical statements. You go down to chapter 4, verse 13 and 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, uh, faith is null and promise is void. For the law brings what? The law brings wrath. These are... These are radical statements that Paul is making concerning the law. He says, where there is no law, there's no transgression. We move to chapter 5, verse 20. Uh, more recently, I've been making a lot of noise about this verse. Uh, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then we move to chapter 6 and verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now we're looking for stones. At this point, 
looking for stones to, to throw at the Apostle Paul. What do you mean we're not under law? Uh, what could you, where, where are you coming from, Paul? We go to chapter seven, verse four, you have died to the law. Verse five, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Excuse me? Verse six, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit. And I think we could add to this some of the comments I made last time. If you look at chapter seven, verse one, Paul tells us there that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And last week I said, you know, the law is binding as long as the sinner lives. You know, once you break the law, it gets a hold of you. Gets a hold of you, and it's not going to let you go. I mean, you're a lawbreaker. Uh, the law has no mercy. Uh, it has no curve. That's so popular today to, to think that there's a curve. There's going to be some kind of curve. There is no curve. The law, the law has no kind of curve. The law is always picking on us. It's always, it always reveals your faults, no matter how hard you try. It is always showing you warts and all. No matter how hard you work to try to hide it, it's right there. It's, it's exposing your heart. No matter how hard you try to backpedal it, it sentences you. It convicts, it judges, it sentences, faults finding. Um, so all of this having been said, we might be inclined, given Paul's argument, uh, is the law any good? Uh, is the law any good? And if you look at verse 7, what does Paul say? To put it in his words, he says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? In other words, he said, is the law any good? Notice how he answers. Look at that little phrase. By no means. That phrase has come up before, hasn't it? The beginning of chapter six and comes up a couple times in chapter six. He says, by no means. And if we continue in verse seven, he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, Paul is not saying that, okay, none of us would know right from wrong if we didn't have access to the Ten Commandments. He's not saying that. Uh, how do we know that? Well, you remember back in chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, what does Paul say there? You know, he's speaking of the Gentiles who do not have the law, verse 14. Uh, by nature... Do what the law requires. Okay. You see that there? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is what? It's written on our hearts. And it's been a while, but we studied that verse uh, months ago. Uh, and... We come to the conclusion that what is God teaching us through those passages is that the law is written on each of our hearts and missionaries and sociologists will tell us that you can go to virtually any culture you want and there is a standard of right and wrong there. And much of the standard, I mean, it's, it's distorted, of course, because we're fallen, but as image bearers of God, we, uh, we all have this uh, sense of what is right and what is wrong. So... If that is the case, what in the world is Paul saying in verse 7? 
when he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it had not been for the law, I would have, um, I would have known, known sin. What, what is he saying there? Well, look what he goes on to say next. He said, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Um, what is Paul saying here? Uh, I think a clue to what he's saying here can be found in his choice of commandments. Uh, I think it's interesting that the Apostle Paul uses the 10th commandment here. I think it's quite interesting. And you'll notice that he doesn't say, listen, if it, if it wouldn't have been for the law which said thou shalt not murder, I wouldn't have known what murdering is. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say if it wouldn't have been for the commandment that says thou shalt not steal, I wouldn't know what stealing is. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say if it wouldn't have been for the commandment that said thou shalt not commit adultery, I wouldn't know what adultery is. He doesn't say that. Or lying, if it would not have been for the commandment that said you shall not give bear false testimony, I wouldn't have known what lying is. He doesn't say any of those things, does he? Instead, he, he says if it would not have been for the commandment that said thou shalt not covet, I wouldn't have known what covetousness is. Now, why is he picking on the 10th commandment here? Well, um, the 10th commandment is inward, isn't it? How do we externally covet something? Can we externally covet something? I mean, we can exhibit behavior that is driven by covetousness, but the actual covetousness is inward, isn't it? It's inward. If we know somebody really well, we might be able to tell that they're coveting something. We might be able to tell by their, by their behavior that they're coveting something. But the whole idea of covetousness, that is all inside, isn't it? It's all inside. And I think that when this rang true to Paul's heart, he discovered that sin was not merely behavioral or external. He discovered that sin is an inward condition. It's an inward condition, and, and, and we see here the law is a mirror. It's a mirror. And the interesting thing about this mirror is, you know, probably most of us have already looked into a mirror already today. I assume that most of us, when we were brushing our teeth and getting ready to come to church, we, um, we looked into a mirror, and when you looked into the mirror, what did you see? You saw cheekbones, you saw eyebrows. Uh, you might have been scared of what you saw on top, you know. You might have saw bed hair, maybe, you know, hair all. Uh, but my point is, what you saw is all external. You saw the outside. But see, the law is a mirror. But it's a mirror that exposes the inside. It exposes the inside doesn't it? It's really a magnificent thing. Um, it's a magnificent thing. Now, it gets even more intense in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, Paul says that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of what? 
covetousness. See, again, he's picking on this inward sin, the sin that can only be committed inside, this covetousness. So, okay, many in the first audience thought the law could produce righteousness, but here we see the opposite, that this this inward sin takes the law, if you will, and there's this reaction that takes place. This inward sin takes the commandment and a reaction. When, these, when this inward sin and the commandment are added together, we get this, we get this reaction. And what is it? It's, it's more sinfulness. Uh, it's actually doing the very opposite that we would think that, it's, that, it, that it should do. Uh, earlier this week, I was listening to an old interview Actually, it was an old episode of uh, Car Crazy. Has anybody ever seen Car Crazy before? No, no one's seen Car Crazy. Well, uh, it was an episode of Car Crazy, and it was featuring Jeff Beck. We've got some guitar players here. Um, Jeff Beck is an, an old, one of my old favorite guitar players, and he was being interviewed, and they, they were in the outskirts of London looking at his, his car collection, and... Um, through the course of the interview, the interview asked Jeff Beck, where did your your love for cars come from and your love for music, where did it come from? And he said, well, when I was a boy, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years old, my uncle took me for a ride in his little sports car and and he said, I thought that was just, and you could see him, he was just all lit up, just thinking of those memories and they're going down the, the English country roads in this car and he's just thrilled and uh, he noticed on the dash there were these two knobs, and he asked his uncle, he said, what do these knobs do? And, and his uncle said, well, I, I don't really know. And, he, and, and Jeff Beck turned, turned one of the knobs, and there was a little switch, and, and he turned the knob, and music started playing. His, his uncle didn't even know there was a radio in the dash, and music started playing, and Jeff Beck said it was blues, and he was really getting into it. And his uncle quickly turned it off, and um, after the, shortly, shortly after that, his mom had taken him to see a movie. And he said the B movie, not the A movie, not the movie they went to see, but the B movie. He said the B movie had this scene in it where uh, these folks were lined up and they had these hot rods and they were about the drag race. And uh, don't, don't misunderstand the interview here. Jeff Beck was not promoting that we'd be drag racing on the highways. In fact, he wasn't promoting immorality in any way. He was being a perfect gentleman in the, in the course of the interview. And he said he saw those cars and, and he just uh, was just enthralled by those cars. And his mom actually grabbed him and took him right out of the theater. And they never saw the movie. She didn't want him being involved with the cars and uh, and then he said something that I thought was really, really insightful. He said, you know, when your parents tell you to do something, it just makes you want to do it all the more, doesn't it? And he wasn't saying it because he was promoting disobedience. You could never get that from his interview. He was just merely explaining how all this came to be. But it's interesting that he would say, you know, when your parents, when they tell you not to do something, it makes you want to do it all the more. The law stimulates a sinful heart to do what? To continue to rebel even further, doesn't it? And that's what Paul is saying here. And here's a radical statement. Look at the end of verse 8. In fact, let me read verse 8, the whole thing. Paul says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, uh, 
produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And then he says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin lies dead. Now, we can can surmise immediately that Paul doesn't mean that without the Mosaic law, there is no sin. We can surmise that immediately. Why? Well, think about Noah's flood. Think about Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. God destroys the entire earth, doesn't he? And why does he destroy the entire earth by way of a flood? He destroys it because of of, uh, judgment for what? Judgment for sin. And this occurs centuries and centuries and centuries before God gives his law through Moses, doesn't it? So what does Paul mean here that apart from the law, sin lies dead? Well, he's saying again what he said in the first part, namely that the law excites sin, if you will. Uh, it's uh, there it is in our heart, this uh, this sinful desire. But as soon as the commandment comes, what's it do? It actually enrages it. It actually enlivens it. It actually uh, enlivens it and excites it. And if you um, if you continue on and you look at verse nine, Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, left to ourselves, we rest very comfortably in our sins, don't we? Without God's grace, we are very comfortable in our sins. And uh, I mean, if the Holy Spirit would begin, and that's why I was praying the way I was, why it was on my mind was because of writing this sermon. If the Holy Spirit would come into the Ohio Valley and convict our loved ones, and our fellow neighbors of their sins, people would be coming to Christ in droves. Um, but until then, um, we are quite comfortable in our sins quite comfortable but when the commandment comes that is when the holy spirit convicts us of our self-righteousness well then sin comes alive and we die doesn't it? i'll give you a story out of my own background i've shared it with some of you i don't think that i've shared it with all of you but back when we had our music store there was a, a fellow that i got to be very close friends with who was he was an extraordinary bass player and I mean, this guy was so good. Like, not many bass players can, like, attract a crowd and keep an attention. It's just the nature of the instrument. But he was one of those guys that not only could he attract a crowd, he could keep them, he could keep them entertained for a good 45 minutes. We hired him at our grand opening just to play. We had him set up on some gear, the store stock, and, and he, he played uh, for, what, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. He loved it. Everybody, little kids senior citizens and everything in between gathered around him. He's such an incredible player. Um, and we got to be really good friends. And we, we, he would sometimes come into the store just as I was about to close. He would see my truck sitting there and he'd come, he would come in and we would turn out the open light and uh, turn out everything but the, but the night lights. And we'd sit in there and play blues sometimes till 9, 30, 10, 11 o'clock sometimes. And one particular, it was a September-ish uh, evening, 
we had done just that. And as he was getting ready to leave, we were standing under the nightlights and was about to open the door and exit and lock the door. His nickname for me was Bad Dude. He says, man, Bad Dude, when am I going to see you in church? And uh, this is what I said to him. I said, I don't know. Sunday is the only morning I get to sleep in. That's what I said. Those words came out of my mouth. Sunday is the only morning that I get to sleep in. And he looked down, not in a legalistic way. It might sound legalistic, but it wasn't legalistic. It was just fact. He looked down like this. And then he looked back up at me and he says, man, bad dude, all that the Lord has given you and you're telling me you can't spend an hour with him a week. Oh, the commandment came and I died. And boy, did I die. I died so significantly that I've never been the same since that evening. I've never been the same since then. Conviction. It kills. The mirror was placed before my heart. And I didn't see the external. I saw the internal. The very commandment, verse 10, that promised life proved to be death. I was, Kenny had no way of knowing this. I, I've, I, I wrestled with this and wrestled with this and wrestled with this. And I came to the conclusion that Kenny had no way of knowing this. He had no way of knowing this. I never discussed this with him. But I was proud of the way I paid my bills. My credit was impeccable. If I went into the bank and I wanted whatever, they gave it to me because there was a single mark on my credit. My credit was outstanding. And suddenly I was a delinquent of the worst kind. I had paid my bills on time. I thought this was the good way to live. You know, you, 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 you pay your bills. You make a commitment. You keep your commitment. You do this. You do this. You do this. Suddenly, it was brought to my attention that I had never paid honor, respect, and service to the Holy Father who had given me everything that I enjoyed. In fact, in all practical purposes, I, I lived as if He didn't exist at all. And I died. Uh, that started the whole thing. I've never been the same since that day. Verse 11 sums it up. Paul says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. Maybe some of you have a similar story. So is the law sin? Back to Paul's question, by no means. It's a mirror into the heart convicting us of our sins. Isn't it? it doesn't reveal the outside. It reveals the inside. That's the first point. The second point, I won't keep you very long for. If you're thinking the second point's going to be as long as the first, I got good news for you. It's not going to be that long, okay? Um, the law is a window. It's not only a mirror, it's a window. If you look at verse 12, Paul there states his conclusion. And here, I mean, we can have no doubt about how Paul views the law. Look what he says. He says the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and what? It's good. You know, now, how can Paul say this about the law? It's because the law describes God's character, doesn't it? I mean, if we want to know what God's like, study the law. It's a marvelous study. I can remember shortly after I, I was convicted um, in that store that night, I began to read the Bible. I read the Bible in about six months. And I spent a lot of time in the Old Testament reading the Old Testament, reading all those laws. 
And it's a good exercise to do that. Why? Because as we read those laws, we learn what God is like. The law is merely a reflection of his character. What is God like? Well, he keeps all these laws. That's what he's like. You know, he, he, first of all, you mean he never lies? God tells us that in Christ Jesus, we can have eternal life. We can believe him. Why? Well, he never lies. He never lies. He never steals. He is always perfectly faithful. That's why adultery is so heinous to him. He is always perfectly faithful. He meets us with steadfast love and a love that is perfectly, perfectly faithful. His justice is always perfect. And we can just continue to go on and on and on. So we see that the law reveals, it's a window. Not only is it a mirror to where we see our insides, we see what our heart is really like. It's actually a window to his beauty and his character and his majesty and his splendor. And in fact, it is the window that makes it a mirror. I'm looking around for puzzled faces. I see a couple. What do I mean by that? By looking through the window and seeing God's perfection. That causes that window to suddenly become a mirror. Which reveals our imperfection. Does it not? Think of Isaiah. Isaiah is like a perfect example. Upstanding man, as I've said many times. If Isaiah lived in Chester, we would all say, Isaiah is the holiest man around, period. You want to be in the presence of a holy man, an, ups, an upstanding man, a good man, a man of God, go visit Isaiah. The experience would be incredible. Go visit him. Yet in a vision, he sees the Lord seated upon his temple, seated upon his throne in his temple. And what happens to Isaiah? There's the window where he sees. And as soon as he sees, that window becomes a mirror. And he cries out, woe is me, for I am undone. The Hebrew literally means I am coming apart at the seams. I'm coming apart at the seams. Nobody is going to come to Jesus in a saving way until they realize this. You see, without the Holy Spirit doing this work, our labors are in vain, everyone. They're completely in vain. The Holy Spirit has to put the window before us so that we can see through the window and that the window would become a mirror so that our hearts could be exposed before him. Is the law good? Oh my goodness, the law is good. The law is very good. Should we reject the law? By no means. We're not saved by works of the law, but being saved, we're not to be lawless, are we? No. The law is our mirror exposing the work that God needs to do in our hearts, isn't it? And it's times like these where sometimes God will reveal to us the work that needs done and we get convicted of our sins and what do we do? We, we repent and we, we find his forgiveness afresh and we find his forgiveness all over and God moves us through one thing and then time goes by and he reveals another thing and time goes by and he reveals another thing. He never reveals it all to us at once, does he? If he would suddenly do that, none of us could bear it. I couldn't bear it and you couldn't bear it. So merciful, so fatherly, so, so, uh, so much a parent to us and a loving parent. He reveals a little bit at a time 
But he does reveal it, and, and when he does, he does it by way of the law. I mean, he does it by way of the window. We look at his character, we look at what he is like, and the window becomes a mirror. And by God's grace, may that, may that window be ever before us, and may that mirror be ever before us. And uh, which is to say, may we become more and more uh, like the standard, more and more like the law. Amen. I think that's enough for this morning. What do you think? Okay. I see lots of smiles. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, your word to us this morning, Father. We thank you for your tender compassion and care and patience. We thank you, Father, that you meet us and our hearts are so twisted and our hearts are so, uh, they, are, they are so uh, sinful beyond what we can even imagine. But Father, we thank you of the extraordinary grace that we have in Christ Jesus, that Jesus came and took uh, this sin and he, he took it away from us, that he paid the penalty for it, and he gave us the very righteousness that is his. And Father, we thank you that we have this new life. We died in, when Christ died. We died. Uh, we were crucified with him. And in this spiritual sense, we were raised with him. And we thank you for this, new, this newness of life that we walk in. And it is not a newness that rejects the law, but it is a newness that embraces the law, not for salvation, uh, but for righteousness. And uh, Father, impress these things upon our hearts. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.